All right. Well, good morning. Well, that was either my mic wasn't on or y'all didn't hear me. It's, it's okay. I know it's the shirt. You're like dizzy. Um, I checked. Uh, I apologize for any motion sickness created by the shirt. By the shirt. Um, I asked Dr. Hunter, and he approved this shirt for the sermon. So we're we're okay. You'll be all right. Um, what a great picture as we've talked through these. By the way, don't let Paul fool you. He's the, one of the leading causes of knives in this church. That's a, <laughs> ask him sometime about his honeymoon, getting, having the airline take six knives out of his bags on his way to the... <clears throat> Luckily, Jill can talk a good fight, or he might have been arrested on their honeymoon. So it's a good story. Here, it's, ask him sometime. Um, don't ask Jill. It's not funny to her. It is funny to Paul. Um, Man, what a, so what a great connection uh, as we build in through this, um, this passage that Jared left us with last week. Thank you, Jared. Um, what a great picture of the idea of Jesus switching our cups. Um, he, and I, he and I talked a little bit about, afterwards talked about what a great image that was. Not only that Jesus is drinking the cup, is taking to the dregs God's wrath for us, but the idea that he, he in his authority, switched cups with us. Um, what a great picture of the idea. Um, we talked about how tempting it is to like show the scene from um, Princess Bride, you know, the, what in the world could that be? And then, and then switching, Jesus switching the cups. But, but in that moment, really amazingly, what you have is that one of the messages, and we're going to stick with this through the end of John, is that Jesus is in charge. And there's never any question of that. If you've ever been raised, as, as I think I was unintentionally, through songs and other things that like, that Satan was in charge of these last 24, 48 hours. And that, that Jesus is being dragged through this process against his will. And a few years ago, I don't probably now more like 15, 20 years ago, reading through John and realizing that's not at all what is happening. Jesus is going to drag the world to the cross. They can't get him there. They have no power to do it. He has to, he has to take every step himself and drag humans who are either too evil, too, too foolish, too incompetent to pull the crucifixion off, he's going to have to do it for them. And you're going to see that all through everything we teach for the next few weeks, you're going to see that. But this idea of Jesus switching the cups, what a great picture of, and what a great reminder of who we are in that, in that picture of sitting there with the cup of death and wrath um, in front of us, and Jesus sitting with the cup of God's glory in front of him, and him saying, um, I'm in charge. I dictate terms, I declare reality, I'm switching cups. What a great picture of what true servant leadership looks like, of the, the idea of servant leadership that is, that is presented in the teachings of Jesus and Paul, and that, that someone who is the, the leader, the Lord, the master, the boss, the whatever, what a great picture of going, so therefore, because I'm in charge, I take the hard thing and you take the good thing. It's what it means to lead in Christianity. I take the hard thing, I make the hard thing, you, you take the easier thing, and Jesus models that in a way that is cosmically unbelievable here. Unbelievable. And, and of course, being us, you, you know our heart. And we're going to talk about the heart of man through Peter today, some of the idea of that Jesus going like, you know what, this cup is now your cup, that cup is now my cup. And of course, as humans, we go like, but that's my cup. I mean, there's some part of us that rebels even in that. No, no, I, uh, but that's my cup. You don't get to take my cup. And in this, Jesus going, but, but your cup is the wrath of Almighty God poured out on your sin. 
We can't even fathom that. So I'm going to switch with you, and you, you take glory and grace, and I'll take, I'll take death and wrath. And of course, of course, in that, all the glory ends up being his, but it's such a beautiful picture. Um, the, the reason I wanted to reference that again very quickly is um, you may have noticed up on the, the screens that it's, it's now that time of the, the year that if you have someone who you see in our church, in our church, we have deacons in our church. Deacon, just the word just means servant. I mean, that's, that's the role of the deacon at South Spring is to serve. And not just to serve, but to be willing to be in the spotlight of service. And that's, that's kind of a rare combination sometimes. People who are great servants sometimes want to avoid the spotlight. And that's totally... Anything? That was strange. Um, uh, and so, so the idea is if you say, I've seen someone who serves, they serve diligently. You can't make someone a servant by declaring them a servant. That's, that's goofy. What we're doing when we ordain a deacon is we're saying, this is a servant. We all see that this is a servant. And we want everyone to be able to look at this person as an example of being a servant. And so we want to ordain you and so that we can point out we all ought to serve like this person serves. It's a weird position to be in. Um, and so, but it doesn't mean that not everyone, is, everyone in this church, if you're a member, you're a servant or you're not, unless you're on some, some sort of sabbatical and we need that, you may have come to this church hurting and broken, damaged um, or even traumatized by a church experience and you may need to rest. And if that's you, rest, just do it. Don't feel bad about it. Don't feel weird about it. When I talk or when others talk about how we need to be engaged in serving, we don't mean you. If that's you, if you're in a period of rest and needing to do that, do it. Don't feel bad about it. That doesn't, this doesn't apply to you. For everybody else, it applies to us. Then we go, how do we get engaged? How do we get involved? How do we serve? That's for all of us. That's what it means to be a, a, a member, a servant in the church. Now, again, so if you see someone, you go, I think like they're such a great example of service. I would like to be able to publicly point to them as someone who serves and leads well in service. Then all you need to do is send an email in or write something down and leave it in the church office with someone's name. Check with them first, because again, as I said, not all servants want that, um, and they don't. Uh, many servants don't need that, um, uh, and, and would actually prefer not to. But if that's you, if you say there's someone like that, I'd like to do that. That's that's how you do that, and then we'll talk with them about it. That's a side comment, but I wanted to com I wanted to make sure you you heard that that's something we do periodically. Now. Back to, back to this account. Jesus here is in charge, and after his conversation with the Holy Spirit, with Moses and Elijah, with God the Father, up on the Mount of Transfiguration, if there's any doubt as to whether he knew everything that was coming, he knows everything that's coming after that. And so if there's any question before that, he certainly knows. And here's what's wild. He is so in charge. Like, literally, this is the plan. Jesus is living out the plan that the triune God, creator of heaven and earth, created and put into place before the creation of time. At the choosing of creation, this plan was in place. Jesus was chosen before the creation of time to be the member of the Godhood who took the role of coming to earth, experiencing life as a human being, a squealing, squirming baby, all the way to the point of a servant who wanders around teaching in the dust, in the sweat, in the dirt of first century Israel, and is eventually going to be beaten and executed um, for this message and for the taking on the cup that we just talked about. That's, that's him. Taking ownership is what he's done. That was where he started. According to Philippians 2, which we, again, we honor Philippians 2. We have a ministry huddle. I think it's in a couple of weeks. I don't remember exactly which Wednesday night it is. 
Um, you'll be hearing more about this, but we do a ministry huddle where we, we actually talk about Philippians 2 and some of the main traits. You'll have a chance soon to actually nominate people based on the traits. And again, it's, it's, it's a little bit silly, but it's also meant to just remind us, man, this, this, this is our mind. That's what it says in Philippians 2. This is our mind, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Um, and Jesus, who though by the nature of what it means to be God was God, emptied himself. He came to live as a human, not just a human, but a servant, not just a servant, but a servant to death, and not just any death, but the death of a cross. He is our model, that that's what he lives out for us. Understand, that was in place before he was arrested. That was in place before the creation of time. And so all of this is in his control. Remember, if even the little hints, Jesus is the one who sent Judas. Remember that? We went, looked at that a few weeks ago, that, that Jesus is the one who told Judas, you know what, time, go now. It's time. Jesus is the one who pushed over the dominoes that will lead to this. Jesus is the one, as we heard last week, who steps up and faces maybe hundreds of soldiers and thugs. If Jesus could hide in midday at the temple, he certainly could have hidden in the dark in a garden on the, in Gethsemane at the, at the olive press. So he had to come forward and declare himself in the torchlight who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. They all fall down. He has to wait. Gather yourselves, boys. You're here to arrest me, remember? I always wonder if they flinch the second time he says it. I don't know. So the second, they ask him again. He asks again. They have that little exchange again after they get up and dust themselves off. And he's like, now, who was it you're looking for again? And they're like, well, Jesus. And he goes, that's I am. And he says it again. I don't know if he turned down the volume this time or what, but they don't. They don't fall. I think they all flinch. You can imagine them all going like, oh, he's going to say it again? Okay, we're, we're all right. All right. And so this is, this is why we're going to see what happens next with this. Jesus has to wait for them to get up. Jesus then stops Peter. Um, and the final convincing evidence in this little section so far that Jesus is in charge is that he healed Malchus's ear. You realize, you realize Peter lashes out with perhaps hundreds of Roman soldiers and other members of the Jewish leadership, he lashes out, draws a weapon, and slashes at this man, removes his right ear, and they don't kill him. And the reason they don't kill him is because Jesus instructs it. No, no, you're going to let them go. I mean, this, this transcends any Jedi mind trick. He just declares the truth. No, no. You're coming for me, so you're going to let them go. This, this moment should have gone madly out of control in that moment. Everyone had an itchy trigger finger, so to speak. And in this moment, Jesus declares, this is what it's going to be. Why bother to heal him? Let me just show you how in charge Jesus is. He's not in a hurry. There's no rush. He's not being reactive. He's just playing out the role that he knows he has here. And in this, so Malchus gets his ear cut off. And we don't know who Malchus was. Um, that sometimes we think when people are named like this, it's because people knew who they were. Maybe he converted. Maybe he became a Christian later. Would not be surprising after this encounter with Jesus, right? That'd be pretty amazing. And so here you have Malchus there. His ear gets knocked off. And Jesus, in the midst of this, takes a moment to lean down, apparently pick a bloody ear up off the ground. I mean, he's got to blow it off or something, right? I mean, <laughs> And stick it back and reattach it to Malchus's head while speaking. Why bother? 
I mean, Malchus is probably going to be fine. He may be disfigured, but he's going to be fine. Well, consider, this is a man who works for the chief priest, and a, and, a, and a person who has been disfigured cannot enter the temple. So this would be a man who Jesus is, Jesus is still concerned about this man's ability to engage with the Father in the temple. This is a, this, Jesus is concerned still about this man's relationship to his creator God. What a fascinating picture for Jesus to take a moment and do this. So I want to take just a second. I want to talk about swords and Peter. Now, the concept of swords, I want to teach you something, is about the way of translation. Translations are really hard. It's way beyond me. It's unbelievable to me, the work that people do to translate Scripture. Um, and I'm about to show you an example, just one tiny example why for us it's even hard to recreate this image, even just to teach it. But I got to meet Friday um, morning with a, a young lady named Lindy um, Pate, who is, um, uh, she's been a Bible translator for years. She was a student in the Forge years and years and years ago, and she's been translating the Bible for a decade in a small community in Papua New Guinea. And they finished it, and they have a whole new, can you imagine being able, she's one of the like six people who officially, they would never do this, but officially could be one of the six people to sign that. To be like, I, I was part of the six-person team who created a New Testament in, an, in a spoken-only language, and now it's a written New Testament. But she would send out newsletters about the challenges they faced. The spiritual warfare she's dealt with, I can't even wrap my brain around. Um, people literally dying in key moments or, or getting sick in key moments that, that are just shocking. But what she's faced, but even the humorous stories about how getting the language correct, because in this, in this tribal language, the ability to tell um, where something is in time and space, they essentially have no concept of that. Everything is in the present, and, and it's, it's right in front of you. And so if there's this, as I'm understanding it, that's going to be wrong. Even that may be wrong. Lenny might be like, that's not what I was saying. But that's, it's so beyond me, I can't even grasp it. But but where she talked about how they took them forever to figure out how to clarify to people that the sign, King of the Jews, was not nailed to Jesus' head, but was nailed above his head. Like this was an incredibly difficult concept for this tribe to get, and yet that would be wrong, right? It was not nailed to his forehead. And so that kind of stuff is really challenging for us. I want to give you a picture as we try to create this picture of moments like this, um, which Jerry did last night, in the dark, all these soldiers, all this. So what exactly did Peter pull? Like, what, did, what exactly did Peter pull out of, his, uh, out of the sheath to attack? And so you give everything from, like, a fisherman's knife, right? A, a, a filleting kind of knife, a razor-sharp filleting kind of knife that fishermen, most fishermen would have probably carried all the time. And so this filleting type of knife that he would have drawn it and slashed and cut off Malchus's right ear. That's what some think. Some think it was like a fisherman's type knife. Some think it was a sicari, the curved dagger that... that, um, that that Jewish zealots and terrorists carried around with them. They carried these hidden, you can hide them because they curve, you can hide them more easily against your body. And, um, and, and these were, the Sicarii carried these in case they had a chance to assassinate somebody. And so if they ran into a Roman in a dark alley or a tax collector, for example, in, in the woods, like, so that they could kill them and leave them there and no one would know who had done it. And so they carried these daggers with them. I especially like this one, because, um, see, as, as Westerners, we picture when it says Peter drew a sword, everybody pictures Excalibur, right? Or Braveheart sword or something like that. Some big European sword that he came in and like, Wah! you know, like, like William Wallace or something. That's not going to be right. We know that's not right. We don't know what is right, but we, we know that one's wrong. So just get that out of your head. And so the idea, maybe, maybe he was carrying this. Now, this would have also drawn extra, um, probably, rebuke from Jesus 
because these were murder knives. Maybe the zealot, one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. It would be natural that he still carried one. But why would Peter be carrying an assassin's knife? That's an interesting question. I think it could have drawn part of Jesus' rebuke. Like, Peter, what are you doing with one of those? So, but here you have, here you, and by the way, I like this one especially because this is actually African. Because I think as Europeans, we, as, as Westerners, we picture a nice, sturdy, you know, cold steel carbon blade that would be really functional. When the truth, this is, this is an African version um, uh, that uh, Josh Knight uh, brought this morning. His, his, a couple of his sons are from Ethiopia. And so, and so that, this, that this would have been more like, because this is probably you know, kind of handmade, a handle with a piece of metal attached to it, and then the metal has just been ground, sharpened until it's a, a, a razor's edge. That's a possibility, something like that. Other commentators think that it might have even been a Roman gladius. Now, this would have been a little strange, um, the Roman gladius, um, because it probably would have just said gladius, although the Ro- this is what the Romans carried. It's what usually is in the armor, the suit of armor out there. Um, it would have been really sharp. It probably would have just said gladius, so I think that's unlikely. Um, but the, the, the Greek-style sword, which is a single-edged blade with a little bit of a curve in it and a, and a grip thing like this, um, almost what we would think of as a machete. Um, in fact, the, the word for this, mach ahira, um, it, is, it sounds a little bit like machete, in fact, when you say it, but it, although maybe there's no connection at all, it's hard to tell, but the, um, uh, maybe something like this. But again, picturing something made with the craftsmanship more of like a piece of steel um, attached to a handle and then sharpen whatever. And, and here's the thing. Here we are 2,000 years later with the type of understanding we have, and we don't know for sure what to picture. What exactly is going on? Here's what we do know. There's no way Peter thought he was surviving this experience. There's no way. You pull this or this or even this, in this moment with potentially hundreds of Roman soldiers and thugs in the night, and you go to town on one of the people who's there, and they're going to kill you. And Peter had to know this when he drew this sword. Whatever blade, whatever the, the Greek word here, which is, really can just mean blade, whatever he drew, and, and, and by the way, I tend to think is more of the sword style because later Jesus is going to tell them that if they don't have a sword, they should go buy one, and they're going to say, well, between the 12 of us, we have two, and Pete, Jesus is going to say, that's enough. It's hard for me to imagine that a whole group of fishermen would have only had two fishermen's knives between you know, almost all of them. What, nine of them are like, six of them are like fishermen that we know of. Um, so I, I don't know. But whatever it is, what we know here is Peter, one, I want you to have that concept of how challenging translation and stuff like that is, even teaching sometimes can be um, with this type of stuff. Also, I want to give you the opportunity, if that kind of stuff is, is cool to you, if you're like, man, the idea of a new language, being ter- that there's, a brand, there's about 1,600 more that need New Testament translations. Um, there are thousands of people around the world through multiple different ministry organizations who are looking for help financially, prayer, that kind of stuff. Lindy's in one of them. She's now back in the States because with her experience, they're now putting her in charge of more consulting where she travels around the world to help them with hard passages and stuff. And so um, if you're somebody who says like that kind of thing, being to get to sign off on that, getting partial credit in heaven for that kind of work, um, if you want that, come, come tell me or send me an email and I'll get you in touch with her or another organization like that because we need more people they think maybe at current rate, about 2050, we could have every, tra- every language, have a New Testament in every language. 
about 2050. Um, there's no reason not to get that done. Now, um, so with that in mind, I'm getting, jumping back into the passage here. Jesus in charge is going to continue to show it. Um, we created that scene. Peter jumps out with the sword, but he gets called down by Jesus. He said he would die for him, and he, I think he thinks he's about to. So Jesus, Peter said, I'll die for you. Jesus said, no, you'll deny me. Peter then attempts to die for him here. Jesus cuts it off. So John, this is what we get. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jared showed us um, all the different impact of that, which is so powerful. Luke, Luke says it this way. When those who were around him saw what would, what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. We know it's Peter. Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Matthew says it this way, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once Send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? What happens in Peter's heart here? I want us to think about that. What happens, and I want you to be wrestling with that even as we go through the sermon. What happens in Peter's heart here? So for, those, for the ladies in the room, especially the married ones, I want to give you some insight that you probably weren't aware of. Men don't do criticism well. I know, right? You had no clue that that was the case, right? You never picked up on that? Um, especially in public. You ever, you ever notice that? Men just don't really like being criticized in public. Here, Peter, some of you are literally not responding. You got to see from my angle, all these women up here going like, <laughs> not responding. It's okay. They're like, I'm not going to say anything now. We're in public. He'll take it as criticism, right? Here in this key moment, where Peter's throwing his life away and Jesus calls him down for it. Put it away. Enough of this. I don't know what happens in Peter's heart, but I can suspect. I think we can identify with Peter well because of his tendency to you know, only remove his foot from his mouth to insert the other one. That seems to be his pattern throughout his, his ministry life. So we can identify with him. We can connect with him. But, but this is another place where maybe we can identify with him. I, mean, I think Jesus has probably hurt his feelings here. I, th I think Jesus has kind of shut him down. And he thought he was proving Jesus wrong. And now Jesus is going to confront him in this. So as we wrestle with this, continue to wrestle with Peter. We'll, talk, we'll come back to him at the end of the sermon here. Notice this, another reference to Jesus being in charge. I could call 12 legions. Again, potentially there is a cohort of Roman soldiers here. Maybe a few hundred men. A legion has about 5,000 men each. So Jesus flippantly tosses out the number of 60,000 angels. And keep in mind, one angel killed 185,000 men in, first, in 2 Kings 19. So if they're even in the range of that angel, and he calls 60,000 of them, it's not like this is a close fight. At any moment, Jesus can put an end to this farce. He can, at any second... Don't you know that I could call to the Father 
There are angels, I believe there were angels straining at the leash this whole time. And I think God the Father was having to hold them back with the power of his word. And they were just waiting, please. Can you imagine how the angels felt when Jesus gets struck by a Roman guard? The rage of indignation and injustice that the angels would have felt, please just let me kill one. Just send me down, just that one, just the one that just hit him. How they must have been petitioning the Father for permission to go and end this. And Jesus is not calling and the Father is not sending. He is that in charge of every bit of this. He points out they are sneaking around in the dark. He was publicly in the open. He is the light. They live in darkness. He is God. They are merely the world. And he says, he said in Luke, this is their hour. And you can hear Jesus say, this is your hour. Enjoy it while you can. It's not going to last. So it tells us in verse 12, so the band of soldiers, the, the cohort, them and their captain, and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Irony in that. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So Jesus finally, after all these times, lets himself be arrested. They bound him. Sure, it makes sense they're afraid of him. Although you're like, did they gag him? Because all he has to do is speak and they fall down. But they bind him. This still shows they have no idea who they're dealing with. Oh, here's this will finally put us in control. We'll bind him. That'll do it. He, every other time, he had walked away, vanished, hidden, done whatever he wanted. He had withdrawn when they wanted to make him king. But now he allows himself to be bound when it's time to die. I think that's intentional. There's a lot of Jewish symbolism going on here. There's a lot going on here that would have spoken to the crowd that was there and who would have read these accounts later. We're in a garden. Gardens are important in Jewish understanding and Jewish tradition. There's an important one near the beginning of the book. There's betrayers. That's important in Jewish history. As, as um, Jared pointed out last week, they're crossing the Kidron Valley of Blood into a dark place made for crushing. Isaac was bound to, take, um, to be taken up onto Mount Moriah by Abraham like this. This is Mount Moriah that he is being bound and taken up onto right now that Jesus is facing. Clearly, that's meant to connect us to the account of Isaac and Abraham right here. Again, the good Jewish audience that we are, we probably all caught that, right? The Jewish reaping and first fruits, which is celebrated in this period, were sheaves of barley bound and, and brought from across the Kidron to the temple and to the high priest. Again, not subtle if we know the story. The counting of the sheaves was the countdown from Passover to Pentecost, and it started with them being bound and taken up. Jesus was, in fact, not only the Passover lamb, but he is the first fruits sacrifice as well. 1 Corinthians, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So let's talk a little bit about Caiaphas and Annas, what's going on here. Caiaphas is the high priest, John tells us, but they took Jesus to Annas. That's clearly not okay. So he's been arrested, and he isn't taken to the high priest, he's taken to Annas. That's because Annas is the actual power broker in Jerusalem. I once had someone, a guide in Jerusalem, tell me that the, the priesthood at this time was essentially like um, the mafia, and that's what's going on here. Annas is the godfather. You don't, you don't take... 
You don't take Jesus to one of the son-in-laws that the Godfather has allowed to be high priest this year. You take him directly to Annas. He's too important. Uh, Annas was appointed by the Roman governor. He was not chosen by the Jewish people or even directly by God. He was appointed by the Romans. He had numerous sons. Several of them also served as high priests. Not really okay. Um, In addition to his own son-in-law, Caiaphas, the disciple James was executed under the priesthood of one of Caiaphas' sons. I mean, one of Annas' sons. Um, These guys are also mentioned in Luke who seemed to think that they were almost co-priests. Annas was so involved that he was almost like a co-high priest. Not okay. All of this is somewhere between illegal and unethical. There was no justice to be found here. Um, There's an old saying I I read in a um, a biography of Crazy Horse. It says, um, you don't go to the top of the hill for water and you don't go to the white man for the truth. Um, In the same way, you don't go to the family of Annas for justice. There's no justice here. The fact that they're in charge of that is a joke. Here you have, remember, it was Caiaphas, it tells in verse 14, John reminds us, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews it would be expedient that one man should die for all the people. He's referencing John eleven fifty. Nor do you understand it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into the into one, the children of God scattered abroad. So from that day they made plans to put him to death. Understand, this judgment had already been decided. Caiaphas had already decided that Jesus was guilty and would be put to death. He had been working toward that from back in John 11. This was the perfect family for God to choose to execute Jesus. They're perfect. Um, they, they, to give up his life under their, quote, power and leadership, they are self-righteous. They're overtly religious. They will practice all of the proper steps, which God wants prophecies fulfilled. He wants sacrifices modeled. He wants all that done right. This family will do that because it's the overtly religious part they're going to nail. But there's also got to be not only overtly religious, but internally mercenaries. They've got to be total pragmatists. It's not that they're worried about what's right. It's that they're worried about what works and executing Jesus works. So God has intentionally chosen the perfect family of Annas to be the ones to redefine what God means, to redefine who the Savior is, and have Jesus killed. The faith, they redefine faith the way they want and then act on it perfect. And then we jump back to Peter. Outside of the passages of David's abuse of power with Bathsheba and Uriah, the denial of Peter has got to be one of the most heartbreaking things in the Bible. I don't know about you, but I, I, even, I just don't like even reading it. And it's in all four of the Gospels. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. And Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, <coughs> who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are, golly, I cannot read that sentence, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. So in addition to our eight I am statements in the book of John, now we have an I am not statement, which is good theology. Man cannot lead the church. 
That's, no, no man could possibly lead the church because we are not. Pick it. What he is, we are not. He is the bread of life, we're not. He's the living water. We can become like a spring flowing through the power of his spirit, but we can't create that. He is omniscient, we are not. He is just, we are not. He doesn't fail, we do. He is all-knowing and faithful and we are not. Now, who this disciple is who lets Peter in, we don't know. I've always assumed it was just John. There's apparently some opinions that are different from that. But I've always assumed it was John. Now, why John would have had access to Caiaphas's or Annas' house, I don't, I don't know exactly. We don't know exactly if it is John. Um, there is a weird passage in Acts chapter 4. Look at this. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all over the high priestly family. Now, I don't know that that's John, as in John the Apostle, who is related to Caiaphas. It is possible, some people think so, that John was closely related to the family, although why he would still be hanging out with him in Acts 4 is a little weird. Um, it could be a different John, or could be more likely a different John or whatever. But if this is John, somehow John has access to Annas' house and enough knowledge of the situation to have Peter invited in. That's where we are. And here's what I want you to see. Um, this is, was Peter still stinging from his rebuke in the garden? He had tried, but Jesus had shut him down. What does that do to our hearts? It often creates a sense of justification. Was he now angry with Jesus? Was he pouting? Did he feel disconnected and hurt? Hey, was he kind of making a vow in his heart? We do that sometimes, Right? When, when in, a, in a marriage situation, we'll find ourselves in our heads going, you know what, clearly they don't, this other person, he doesn't care about my feelings. I'm just never going to talk about my feelings again. I'm never going to be honest with how I feel or think about this again because it, it's, it's bad every time. And so we kind of make this vow before God. I'm never going to do this again. I'm going to be different about this. I'm never going to initiate this again. I'm never going to try this again. And, and Peter's got to be feeling a lot of those feelings. We don't know, but, that's what I, but I can identify with that. Fine, if you don't want that kind of help, I'm done. Maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe it's more than just he's angry. Maybe in Peter's mind, he's no longer a disciple. Maybe Peter's just done. You know what? I'm not, I'm not following this guy anymore. If he's not going to let me, you know, if he's not going to appreciate what I try to do, that's it. We don't know what's going on in his heart. How, how confused is he? Um, we really don't know. In time, it's going to be really important. You can imagine, you don't have this up there, so it's okay, but um, uh, Bob Livesay between was like, it really reminded him of the passage in Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Something was going on. We can't trust our hearts. Things that come from inside of us have to be checked. They have to be evaluated. If you ever hear that, well, just listen to your heart. Sure, listen to it, but it may be lying. Know that it's, your heart can be a liar. We can't trust it. We can't always go with it. Anything that comes from inside of us is worthy of being scrutinized through Scripture and truth. Whatever it is, and eventually Peter's mindset is going to be what we see in Acts 4. Um, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John... And perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. 
This is where that's going to come. Eventually, this is where John and Peter are going to be. Right now, it may be that John and Peter are acting incognito here in this situation. Because here's what happens. Um, Peter has now denied Jesus. And think about it. His heart is so broken and so sick right now that even denying Jesus the first time doesn't remind him of the conversation with Jesus. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus had said, you'll deny me three times before tomorrow. And now here, Peter, um, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? I am not. And at that moment, he doesn't go, wait. Jesus said this would happen. Whatever's bitter in his heart right now is that strongly there. Whatever's going on. It says in verse 18, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves. Remember in, in the last chapter, Jesus prayed all the time that though he was sending us into the world, that we were not of the world. This is not, this is not where we belong. This isn't our home. And it's so easy for us to find comfort here. And I think that's part of what's being portrayed right here. The servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. These were the same ones who had arrested Jesus. Just a few minutes before, in the dark, Peter had pulled a sword on these people. And now what, 30 minutes later? 30 minutes? And Peter has gone from swinging a sword on behalf of Jesus to denying being his follower. And listen to this phrase. This is a kind of a heartbreaking phrase. Peter also was with them. Not with Jesus. With them standing and warming himself. Hey, bad news, Jesus is being tortured. But good news, Peter's warm. Peter's comfortable. He's found a place to be comfortable here in the world, to stand by the charcoal fire that the world has to offer, and he's comfortable here. This, I think, at best, is a warning. That when we see this, that we don't, we don't come out of this and say, oh, we're, here's how we warm ourselves with what the world has to offer. That's our tendency. It's our temptation. It's to do it the world's way and be comforted by the world. We're so radically wealthy. Now, not that wealth, wealth is not an evil thing, but like the heart, it's not trustworthy for us to say, what does this mean and how do I live this out? What does this look like? The world isn't going to offer us the solutions. It can make us comfortable for a little while. Real life intrudes. The world engages. We are in this world, but it does not own us. It does not define us. We are servants of only one king, worshipers of only one God. We live and work within a society, within a culture, but we are with Jesus. We are in the world. We are not of the world. We are not with the world. We are with Jesus. That's the ultimate compliment for a Christ follower. You know what we can tell? You're with Jesus. We can tell you've been with Jesus. Even when our heart is sick or hurt or angry or justified or proud, right or wrong, I admit there are things I want from the world, but it has nothing that I need. What I need is from Jesus. He's who I want, who I need. This is, this is who I'm with. We are in their presence, but we are with Jesus. This is not a um, stereotypical behavioral modification sermon. Hey, go out there and be more Jesus-y. This is follow Jesus. This is what defines you. This is who we are. We are with him. When we need to be introduced, 
You come to the, when you come to the dance, I came with him. This is who I came with. They are, we are those who have been with Jesus. That's who we are. And it should show that we are with Jesus. This is the picture that struck me. Not the comfort of the world. He's not with Jesus. Jesus is in the other room. He's with the same people he drew a sword on moments before. Hey, good news though. He's warm. Beware. I think that's a wary thing for all of us to search in our own hearts. Where do we find comfort in the world rather than with him? Pray with me. Father, you give good gifts. You love to give good gifts. You give good gifts including things like wealth, like comfort, like good things. As a wealthy church, Lord, help us to never consider ourselves with the world, that our needs are met by these things. God, as big a blessing as these things can be, you blessed Solomon with wealth, with knowledge, with passion. But he took all of those things and began to worship them, and seek them. And eventually his heart was drawn away from you by them. God, protect us from that. Protect us from our hearts being drawn away from you by the things that you give us. God, help us to be, though we are in the world, we stand out, we shine like lights, we're refreshing like water, we are tangy like salt. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be experienced by the world as being with you. Whatever that means in our lives, only you know in each individual's life, in each marriage, in each family, in each friendship, in each ministry, what exactly that means. But Lord, I pray that that is lived out in us, that though we are in the world, we are with your son. And it's in his name we ask it. Amen.